The philosopher Bertrand Russell once said, war does not determine who is right, only who is left. Certainly war makes a huge impact on our world, that it's been a fixture of human existence and may be one of the biggest factors that affects world history. And of course, wars are determined by key battles where everything can change with one battle. Some battles are important just for the sheer number of lives that are lost in the battle. Did a little research this past week about battles in human history. And, you know, just to read about World War II, there was a battle called the Battle of Stalingrad that claimed almost two million lives when Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Two million lives. It's just staggering to think about. Wars are also significant because of the lasting result. For example, the famous Battle of Waterloo, where Napoleon and the French army met their demise, uh, was significant for not only for that, but also because it opened the door wide open for the British Empire to become the dominant power, the world power of the 19th century. So there's been all kinds of battles, significant battles throughout time. But of all the battles that have occurred and will occur, the greatest battle still remains. Scripture calls it the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. It is the final battle. It is the battle that is unlike any other battle. It is the full onslaught of Satan and ends with the return of Christ. And when that happens, it truly will be the war to end all wars. In our passage today, this battle is discussed for the first time in the book of Revelation. Now, this battle is mentioned several more times in subsequent passages in the book of Revelation. But, uh, uh, so you don't get a complete discussion here, but you sort of get the main features of what are going to happen at the battle of Armageddon. And then the other passages kind of complete the picture. Church, I think it's important that we know what the future is going to hold. Amen? It's important to know what lies ahead. And it's also important that we can rest assured that God triumphs in the end. And I think we'll see that by the end of the passage made very clear that God is going to triumph in the end. So God's people can take great confidence, great assurance that no matter what happens in the future, at the very end, God stands victorious because he is the king of kings. So let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. As we've said before, we are in between the trumpet and the bold judgments. In this section, we're given seven visions of different sets of characters in this kind of in-between time here. We've seen Satan described and how he sought to defeat Jesus but was actually defeated at the cross and how he's been cast out of heaven as an accuser of God's people and his time is short and he wants to persecute the church. And so as he does this, we saw how he enlists two agents to bring this about. He brings in the, the beast of the sea that represents this uh, political persecution of the church. He brings in the beast of the earth called the false prophet that represents religious persecution of the church. So then last week we saw 
three more visions here. The 144,000 in heaven symbolizing God's people. Three angels who announced that the end was soon. And then we saw Jesus coming in the great harvest, his return, when he harvests the earth of both the righteous and the unrighteous. This is a pattern that we've seen in Revelation where there's a series of visions and then they culminate with the return of Jesus. Again and again, we see these different pictures of Jesus' return and what's going to happen when that takes place. So today we're going to see it again and we're actually going to cover two chapters, so a large chunk of text here. We're going to move quickly. We're going to look at chapters 15 and 16 in the book of Revelation. They really do belong together. Chapter 15 is the preparation of the bold judgments, and then chapter 16 is the completion of the bold judgments. Everybody with me there? Revelation chapter 15. It's, It's very easy to find, right? Go to the back of the Bible. There it is, right there. Not a hard one. So Revelation chapter 15 We're going to read verses 1 to 4. Just get started here. It's a very short chapter. Let's read verses 1 1 to 4 together. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." So John sees these seven angels with seven plagues. And we're going to see here in this passage a lot of echoes of the book of Exodus. And it begins with that usage of the word plagues, which of course reminds us of Exodus when God delivered the nation of Israel from their bondage to Egypt with the usage of these plagues. And John adds that these plagues here in Revelation, they are the end of God's judgments. You see that? This is it. This is the finale. This is God wrapping up things. There's no more after this. Now, John also sees this sea of glass, and it's mingled with fire. What is that about? Well, we've said before that in the Old Testament, the sea symbolizes uh, humanity and our sinful chaos, like the waves of the sea that are dark and crashing around everywhere. Isaiah chapter 57, 20 to 21 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But this sea is different. What is this sea made of? It's made of glass. And I think it's symbolizing the fact that this sea in heaven is perfect and still and calm. There's no chaos in heaven, is there? It's perfectly tranquil and peaceful. But it also is mingled with fire, which is often a symbol of judgment in the book of Revelation. Judgment is about to occur here in the book of Revelation with the bold judgment. We also see here that the redeemed are holding harps. So yes, 
This is where we get that image of people in heaven strumming their harps. All right? So there's actually a basis for it here that it is in heaven there. People are celebrating God and his glory as we saw last week. John also notes how these this people conquered the beast. We've seen throughout these seven different visions how the beast was constantly raging against the people of God. But here we see that the beast ultimately fails and all of the persecution of God's people fails because we stand victorious because of the work of God. Interestingly, they sing two songs, the song of Moses, which was a little different than what we just sang here, right? And the song of the Lamb. And as they do that, they're just declaring the greatness of God and His glory and the things He's done. God is absolutely unique. There is no one like God. And not only is Israel going to worship the Lord in the future, but all nations will worship God. He is a universal God who has gathered in people from all nations and tribes. And again, there's this Exodus imagery as Moses, of course, the song of Moses. We all know what Moses did, right? How he led the nation of Israel out of bondage. And how did all this occur? Plagues came and they delivered the people, right? And they were also delivered by a Passover lamb who died, right, in the place of the firstborn. Moses then led them to the promised land. You see where this is going? Jesus, the lamb, leads his people out of bondage, not to Egypt, out of Egypt, but a bondage to sin and even greater foe. And then God's going to use plagues upon the world, not just in Egypt, but around the world. And his people are going to be delivered by Jesus, the supreme Passover lamb, who dies for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And then he leads us to the supreme promised land, the new creation that's never going to fade away. You see how this is all beautifully tied together? The song of Moses, the song of the lamb, what Moses foreshadowed, Jesus fulfills as that final deliverer, the new exodus, the great exodus that Jesus has brought about. Let's read the rest of the chapter, make a few comments here. After this, I looked in the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure white, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So John sees this sanctuary in heaven open. These seven angels have the seven plagues. They come out. And then one of the four living creatures gives them seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And the scene closes by saying that no one could enter into the sanctuary because of the glory of God, right? And it brings to mind the, the, the image again in Exodus when the tabernacle was dedicated. You remember that scene? When it was dedicated, the glory of God filled the, pl- the place and His presence was so strong that nobody could even be in the building. And it's happening here in the heavenly sanctuary, Nobody can enter in. And I think the point is, is that God is about to bring judgment, and there's going to be no interference for what he's about to do, okay? The time has come. It is about to happen. So that brings us to chapter 16, the completion of the bold judgments. This takes up the entirety of Revelation 16. Preparation is now done. Now is the time for completion. Before we look at Revelation 16, let me just make two brief points here. 
before we dive in. First, as we go through this, I want you to notice how the bold judgments, they really match what we saw in the trumpet judgments. There's a close correspondence. Here's a little graphic in case you need a refresh from the trumpet judgments there. They cover really the same areas, okay? You see there the trumpet judgments listed, listed on the left, and then you have the bowls on the right. So, for example, you know, you're going to see how the bowl judgments affect the land, the sea, the rivers, and the sky. Same thing that took place with the trumpet judgments, okay? So there's a lot of correspondence between the bowl and the trumpet judgments. But here's the key difference. When we looked at the trumpet judgment, remember how there was the fraction one-third? Remember how that appeared all over the place 14 times? In other words, it was showing that God's trumpet judgments were partial. It was not complete, right? And so that's why I think it was these things have been occurring throughout time. But when you get to the bowl judgments that we're just about to look at, there's no more fractions. There's no more fractions. This is it. This is the completion of it all. History is done when the bold judgments are done, okay? So, with all that in mind, and again, there's tons of uh, the Exodus imagery here. You're going to remind yourselves of some of the plagues of, of Egypt here. But let's, let's read the first five bold judgments in verses 1 through 11. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. I just want you guys to read these and hear these. It says, Then I heard a, lot of vo- I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with, earth, with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Sadly, as we just read there, people do not repent, even here at the very end of time, with this great intensification of the judgments of God, even at the end, with all of this judgment being poured out, people are not repenting and they're cursing God. And this is a sad reality of life, that when God sometimes brings judgment into people's lives to try to wake them up, to try to stir them so that they will be broken and so that they will turn to God, instead of drawing nearer to him, they actually push him away and curse him even harder. Proverbs 19.3 says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. It's a sad reality. 
And I hope it's not maybe someone's situation here today where you are going through hard times and you're questioning God and blaming Him when these things are the things that you have brought into your own life. God is just, as we just saw here. We need to have that resolution that the angel said, God is just. He is the one who is in control of this universe. And every single thing that happens is a result of the justice of God. There's never any injustice of God. He is just. And by the way, there is no such thing as karma, impersonal karma that you hear talked about in our culture sometimes. Well, that was just karma. That doesn't exist, okay? You, you need a personal being to have justice, right? Some sort of impersonal karma doesn't make sense. It needs a mind to have justice behind it, right? And so this is where God comes in. He is almighty. He is loving, and he is just. He brings about all these things. So next time someone brings that up, maybe gently point them to who God is and who the God of justice really is about. Now we come to the battle of Armageddon in verses 12 to 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go on who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All right, so there is the sixth bowl judgment. And again, it matches the sixth trumpet judgment where demons were released. You guys remember that from chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. It said, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four altars of the golden, four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, as we saw there, those four angels were not good since they're bound. Good angels are never bound. These were demonic beings that were kept in place at that time. But when the time had come, here now, they were released. And when they are released, they gather this massive demonic army here for this great battle. Now, the Euphrates River is mentioned because that was the eastern boundary to the Promised Land. And whenever nations sought to invade Israel, they would cross over the Euphrates. And I think John is using this symbolically to describe this demonic army that's going to attack the people of God. So Revelation 16, again, fills in more of this picture as we see the activity of what I would call the unholy trinity, right? We saw that here. We saw the dragon. That's Satan, right? We saw the beast, and we saw the false prophet, this unholy trinity, kind of counterfeiting the true trinity. And out of their mouths, it says there, come unclean spirits, which are demons. And John says that they are like frogs. Now, that's very fascinating. What on earth is he talking about there? Why does he say they are like frogs? Well, I'm not going to say that I know for sure. (laughs) But I think a likely guess is that if we go back to Exodus again, you remember when God had the plagues upon Egypt there, 
the first two plagues that were unleashed on Exodus, if you recall, the Egyptian magicians actually were able to duplicate those plagues. Do you remember that? And the second one they could duplicate was the plague of the frogs that were all over the land of Egypt. You say, so what is all this getting at here? Well, I think what he's getting at here is that this is saying that in this case, the imagery of the frogs here is saying that Satan was allowed to perform these great signs and wonders here at the end of time. He's granted this authority. And so he raises up the beast. He raises up the false prophet. And they're doing signs to deceive people and to lead people away. And as it says there, when they start doing these things, they lead away the armies of the world. Everybody starts falling in line and believing them and following their leadership. Now, it's not mentioned specifically in Revelation, but it is said by Paul that this is what the Antichrist does as well. It says in 2 Thessalonians that he is going to kind of rise to power politically, religiously. He's going to be seen and worshipped as God. And one of the things he does is he performs great signs and wonders. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 10, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You see how that echoes Revelation? Saying the same thing there. Satan performs these miracles and people believe them. People believe them. So do you guys see this? This this really remarkable, unique convergence where Satan and this power that he is granted by God for this very short season, he has the beast the false prophet, the Antichrist, this incredible demonic army, this incredible human army, all of them kind of united on the same page. This has never happened before. It's never going to happen again. As it says in verse 14, they gather, what does it say there, for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. By the way, I think there's only one battle. In the Greek language, it literally says, the battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. The the definite article is used there to show that it's not a great battle. It is the great battle. It says the same thing in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. There's a little insert we put in your bulletin there. It has some notes here about the book of Revelation and how it uses the exact same language there to talk about this is the great battle. There can't be so many last battles, can there, right? There's just going to be one great last battle, and this is it. Everybody tracking so far? So the unholy trinity gathers their army, and it says in the place there, it's in Hebrew, it is called Armageddon. This word is really interesting. It's the only time that that word actually appears in all of the Bible. Did you guys know that? The only time that it appears in all the Bible. If you didn't know it, don't worry about it. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> Had to get one in there in the midst of all this pretty heavy topic stuff. All right. Everybody get it? Okay, all right, all right. 
It was just, all right. It was all right. It was all right. It was all right. Okay. <laughs> so Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words. Har means hill, but it usually means mountain, okay? Right? Megiddo is a city in Palestine. It's about 65 miles from Jerusalem. It's a strategic city. People fought over it. And it's a plain. It's a plain. They estimate over, through the years, about 200 significant battles took place there to fight for that piece of property. Some of them, uh, these battles are mentioned in the Old Testament, like when Josiah was killed, King Josiah by Egypt and so forth. Now, Christians debate about what's going to take place here. For example, some would say that this is a local battle that's going to take place just here at this location. Others believe that Megiddo is symbolic for a global battle, like Babylon is used symbolically to talk about the fallen world system. Armageddon is symbolic of the end-time final battle. As for me, I would lean toward the latter view. I think that Armageddon will not be at just one place, but it's going to be global as the Antichrist marshals his forces all around the world to launch one last wave against the people of God around the world. Now, there's more to say about why I would say that, but I'm going to save it for Revelation 20. And I'll also talk about why it's called Mount Megiddo when there actually isn't a mountain there. Why, do they, why does John call it Mount Megiddo? We'll see a little bit later in Revelation 20. But interestingly, we'll leave that for the side now. It's interesting here in this passage, it doesn't talk about the outcome, what's going to take place. It just simply says they gathered for the great battle. So what happens? Well, there's great drama in the book of Revelation. Not everything is filled in right away. There's kind of like, okay, we'll leave you in suspense. And you keep reading and find out more details as you keep going. But I'll give you a spoiler, okay? This great massive army is decisively defeated when Jesus returns. One quick, swift defeat. Once again, we see here, we go to the return of Jesus. It's all about the return of Jesus. This great vision here closes with the return of Christ. And that's where we're going to pick up in verses 17 to 21. The final part of our passage is the return of Christ. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plagues of the hail because the plague was so severe. So as that last bowl is poured out, it says the wrath of God is finished. And when this occurs, there's going to be a great earthquake, as it says there, one that has never occurred like this before. It's going to destroy Babylon. Now, Babylon is really going to come into focus in chapter 17 to 19. A lot of discussion about Babylon. I don't think it's an actual city, but I think it symbolizes this fallen world system that stresses greed, immorality, idolatry, and so forth, persecutes the church, corrupts the nations, and now stands judged. And in verse 20, 
we read that every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. That's kind of hard to even imagine, right? The physical universe falls apart. Now again, we read this stuff earlier. We've seen this already. There's a little handout, uh, the handout again there. If you look at that page there at the bottom, it says destruction of the natural world. We've already read these kind of things so far. So I don't think this is happening again. The sky had already fled away in Revelation 6. I don't think it came back in the meantime. I think it's just another snapshot of what takes place at the end of time. And here, the, the whole universe just basically falls apart and prepares us for the new creation that Jesus is going to institute when he comes back. As we close, let me give two points of application. The first comes from our passage itself. I didn't really talk about it, but I want to go back to it. In verse 15, we see that we need to be ready for the return of Jesus. We need to be ready for the return of Jesus. In verse 15, he said, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Friend, Jesus' return is going to surprise the world. That's why he compares it to a thief in the night, because a thief comes in the night, and you will be unexpected because they come at night. Jesus' return is going to surprise the world. You say, why, why would the world be surprised when it's predicted there in black and white? Why would they not be ready for it? It's because they're not looking for it. They don't want to see it. Just like when he came the first time, the Old Testament had already predicted all these things about Jesus' coming the first time. But yet when he came, everybody was surprised. Because nobody was looking for it. And it's going to be the same way, especially with Satan when he's released here in this authority and the Antichrist. People will be so deluded. People will not be looking for his return. But the focus here isn't on the world. The focus is on the church. And are you ready for his return? Are you ready for that battle that's going to come one day? We should remain ready, especially seeing that when God allows Satan this brief moment of authority, when he's able to do these things, things are going to happen swiftly and quickly and dramatically. That is not the time to sort of get ready for things. When the the greatest battle that is ever going to occur unleashes very quickly and dramatically, that's not a time to say, you know what, now I need to start getting ready. Now is the time when the church is ready. Because that's going to lead to the return of Christ. And when Jesus returns, the church needs to be found ready, busy, serving, proclaiming, declaring that Jesus is the King of kings. And there is hope and deliverance for those who look to Him. How much of our daily lives do we really think about the return of Christ? And just think, oh, it's always going to be some ways, way down in the future. Perhaps it will be. But Jesus gives warnings to the church that we need to be ready now, today, ready. So that when he comes, he says, you are ready. Well done, good and faithful servant. You're not sleeping on the job. You're ready. Are we living our lives ready for that return? God wants us to be ready, 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 ready. 
Be ready for the return of Jesus. Second, we need to marvel at the power of God. You know, this passage, it actually gives a remarkable depiction of the power of Satan and the Antichrist and this armies that they are marshalling. I mean, this is like unprecedented stuff going on here. And what they're able to assemble together is going to be the greatest army. Yet when Jesus returns, he instantly destroys it. No struggle. No reinforcements. Clear victory. Isn't that remarkable? I was trying this week to think about, you know, what, what could be a, a parallel that we, would help us to understand this stuff. And so I thought about, someone mentioned, you know, what, what if some small country invaded the United States? And so I, I did some research online. Since we have the, the greatest military in the, in the world, what, what is the weakest military in the world? And, and what would that look like? So there's some research by globalfirepower.com. They had a ton of stuff on there. And they pointed out how the nation of Bhutan, you might not even heard of that country before, right? That country has the world's weakest military. It's located between China and India. It has about less than a million people. And so here's a comparison just so you guys see there. The defense budget of Bhutan is $10 million. The United States is $741 billion. Military personnel, they have 7,000. We have 1.4 million. Air power, they have two aircraft. The United States has over 13,000. Armor power, they have 25 vehicles. We have over 40,000. So if you heard on the news that Bhutan was declaring war against the United States, I don't think a lot of us would be too concerned, would we? It's kind of laughable, right? I mean, they literally have no navy. So they'd be hard for them to even get their troops here because they only have two aircraft. This battle would be beyond lopsided, right? Now, as lopsided as that battle would be, the Battle of Armageddon is even more lopsided. Satan, with all of that power, is nothing compared to God, who has infinite power, church, infinite power. And so there's no struggle at all for an infinitely power of God, powerful God. There's no comparison. Jeremiah 32, 7 says, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and by your great power and by your outstretched arm, Nothing is too hard for you. I hope that you are reminded and encouraged and blown away by the power of God this morning that we see here in this passage. And I hope also that just practically speaking, that it ministers to your heart that you and I should live with a greater awareness of the power of God in our lives. Because it isn't just his power alone to have, but he delights in giving it to his people who seek it out. Amen? There's a great quote by W.S. Bowd. He said, prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence. He loves to give power to his people when they humbly seek it and they recognize they don't have it in on themselves. And so perhaps you're sitting here today and you feel very weak. You know what? You're actually in a great spot. Because when you're weak, then you can go with the right mindset to God who lifts up those who are humble.
And maybe you're sitting here today and you're just battling the same old temptation. Never get victory over it. Do you know that there's a God who has all power and will give you strength to conquer that temptation? He'll do it. Or maybe you're stuck in a trial that just never is going to end. God will give you the strength to endure it with grace and dignity and honor pointing to Christ through that trial. Or maybe you have friends or family, loved ones who are not interested in Christ and it breaks your heart and you're wondering, God, will you ever work in their lives to be reminded that God does the impossible with with man, things seem impossible. With God, all things are possible. And He can change hearts so that they believe the greatest miracle of all. Conversion, people trusting in Christ. Don't give up today, church. Don't give up and say there's no hope. Don't give up and say that it's done. God is a God of all power and might, and He delights in giving it to His people. Humble yourselves and seek Him, and He will raise you up. He will allow you to endure. He will allow you to lay aside those sins and temptations that are, you're being beset by, and He will work in your life. He doesn't just save all of His power for the battle of Armageddon, but He gives it to His church every day to those who seek it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. Thank you that you gave this incredible revelation to John and that you tell us what will happen in the days to come. Lord, it helps us so immensely in the present when we know the future. So we're grateful for that, Lord Jesus. Thankful for your knowledge and Lord, as we just said, for your power that you possess, only you possess this. I'm thankful that you give it to your people. And Lord, I pray for someone here today who has never trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That they would not want to be on the wrong side of this battle. That Lord, they would see that you are a God of great might and authority. And they would want to be right with you. And Lord, though it's not declared in this passage, we know that it's declared all throughout the rest of Scripture that you're a God of mercy and grace and that today they can find grace at the foot of the cross where Jesus forgives anyone and everyone who places their faith in him. And then, Lord, amazingly, you give that power for us to live. So, Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We worship you. And we close with Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.